Welcome to Anything Goes, the best geek and pop culture show broadcast from Long Island, New York. I'm your host, Timothy Rooney, and we're back with a brand new episode. And I'm not doing a traditional review of what it's used to when it comes to this show. I'm actually doing an interview, and I'm doing a very uh, special interview because it's a person who I uh, greatly admire and respect, and we have been friends for a little bit on the internet, and we're talking about a very special project that he's doing. And what I'm, who I'm speaking to is Oliver Harper, and we're going to be talking about his documentary, In Search of the Last Action Heroes. Oliver, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Tim. It's a very sunny day in Norwich in the United Kingdom, and it's surprisingly still warm, you know, when the, the summer's now finished. But yeah, nice relaxing weekend for once for me. Very nice, and yeah, and it's it's warm over here uh, stateside, and it was kind of a welcome because it's been kind of chilly for the past few nights. I mean, I'm like, all right, I guess I have to close the window this evening because it is too cold. <laughs> but now it's like, all right, weather, make up your mind. You're starting to bother me now. <laughs> well, September time now, so all the spiders are coming in, coming in the house. So I'm just preparing myself for <laughs> these oh. ginormous spiders to turn up. So I've got the Hoover ready. <laughs> <laughs> very nice, very nice. And like I said, we're talking about your documentary, Insert the Last Action Heroes. So let's jump into that conversation right now. <laughs> Okay, now for some people who like, I, like you were one of the first like podcasts just for the show a few years back, and I, I have a few new listeners since then. So there will be certain questions that uh, I, we've I've asked you previously. But for the people who may not know or may not be in the know, um, I'll ask uh, who are you and what do you do. <laughs> well, as as you said earlier, my name is Oliver Harper. Um, I produce movie reviews for YouTube. Uh, they're sort of mini documentaries, got retrospective reviews, uh, audio commentaries as well. And I've been doing that since uh, late um, 2011. So it's nearly, you know, come October, no, November, sorry, of this year, it'll be eight years I've been doing that. Um, so, yeah, so now obviously I've sort of uh, moved on. Not, not, well, not officially moved on, but sort of, um, sort of uh, broadening my horizons by making a documentary outside of YouTube, um, which has been uh, exciting and stressful. <laughs> I can imagine. And I apologize. Like that question, I did sound like Arnold Schwarzenegger in Kindergarten Cop there. I didn't mean to sound like, <laughs> who's your daddy? What does he do? As soon as that left my mouth, I'm like, oh, that's what it sounded like. Jeez. <laughs> But that's fantastic that you were able to sustain that for this long. And I mean, because mm. you know, of like so many YouTubers that have come and gone in that time period, like they grow really big and then just disappear. So it, it really is a, it is a testament for your diligence to be able to continue with your, with your endeavors with YouTube, especially with the adpocalypse a few years ago and such. Yeah, it's um, it's a funny thing. I think many YouTubers who you see kind of sort of turn up and hit really big and sort of slowly descend from popularity. I think but once 
a channel goes viral or they make a video that goes viral they have to sort of keep up that momentum and produce something similar but something's gone viral because it's just a random comedic act that and it's difficult for them to sort of sustain that success um for me it's um it's, it's always luckily it's been a sort of slow sort of um you know, rise up up through the sort of ranking or viewers and subscriber numbers over the years and um in the last year or two it's kind of just gone you know, it's just, I've, you know my channel's done uh extremely well for me in, in my experience of doing it um it's, it's sort of youtube's um you know you're doing it all the time it sort of does take up your life you sort of live in this little bubble of doing stuff um and you have to sort of keep up the sort of schedule, but you have to be really dedicated to want to do it, not just like, hey, I'm just going to do a YouTube channel and and just, you can be people can do that as a hobby and stuff, but if you if you want to make it succeed, you have to sort of put the time and effort in, and um and it's a lot of time. <laughs> you end up doing more than forty hours a week, which has to be pretty stressful on you. Um, but did you have like any like form of education that kind of would have led to you being YouTube being like your full time job? That's a good question. Um, well, I because I studied media uh, at college, uh, so that would be my age would have been sixteen to eighteen. Um, so that was like two years of studying media, which was in the late nineties. So it was all super VHS. So I was editing with and those VHS kind of mixing boards to sort of you know to to edit. It was such a nightmare. And the last year I was there, like literally the following year, uh, they brought in. All the Apple Macs, um, which they already had Apple Macs there, but these were the ones that sort of uh, that could run Final Cut Pro, which was the first edition they released of it. And we, it was like a godsend because they gave us this new camera. It was a Canon camera. It's a, it's a, it's a very popular camera. I think it's, it's kind of red and black, and um, you can find pictures of it online. And we went out and sort of messing around and stuff. It was, I mean, I'd learned some interesting things at the time, but it was a bit of a DOS, you know, just sort of messing around. It was probably the, the funnest time I ever had in the sort of educate, education system. And because beforehand, when you're, you know, studying at regular college, you've got to study maths, science, um, DT, graphics, art. All I, was, all I was concerned with was art. I just like drawing. Anything else I just, you know, didn't give a toss about. So it wasn't particularly fun. Um, so come and doing that, studying media and, you know, and everyone, everyone's got their own ideas of what they want to be. And, um, but I had no real concept of what I wanted to do at that time because I was working at a video game store in the center of town. And that was kind of, and I was earning decent money, you know, for, for what it was at the time in, in, you know, in sort of retail because most people, they sort of paid like five pounds or less. And I was getting paid six pounds fifty an hour. In 2000, you know, that was pretty high for retail. So most, most of my time was sort of drinking and partying at the weekends. And it wasn't until I saw the, sort of, the cinema had opened up, up in Cambridge. And I thought, wow, you know, get op- op- opportunity to be a projectionist. Because you always saw movies like The Last Action Hero, where, you know, ironically, a documentary I make about, you know, uh, it will have a section on. Um, seeing that projection room and all that cinema paradiso, sort of those those moments seeing how the projectors worked and stuff. And I was fascinated by that. So I was lucky that when I sort of changed from the video game store to um, Cineworld, I, my enthusiasm got me the position to be um, a projectionist. And it was, I mean, preparing, you know, doing YouTube is a totally different ball game. You know, it was me. It was just like within that time frame, I was 
at Cineworld for a long time, actually, about seven years. And um, I got made redundant due to the t- change of technology from 35 millimeter to digital. But in that time frame, I had been sort of dabbling with editing, making my own fan trailers, which were, you know, look back now, just like the garbage. But, you know, it was kind of the testing ground of how to use Final Cut Pro. And, and there wasn't that much software available, like additional stuff, like how to rip a disk, you know, information of a disk and put it on your computer was quite difficult and quite uh, cumbersome because software just wasn't really good enough at the time for commercial sense. Um, so I'd, I'd also thought about being a telecine artist, like, you know, grading movies and uh, transferring uh, film to digital you know I, I spoke to this gentleman who'd run this run a company who who did that back in the 80s and he was like a you know high up expert you know and he was yeah I think he had retired but he was very much new people in the biz and I had a chat with him and I, I, you know it was something I wanted to do but to sort of get into that that industry was um you had to you know do a couple of courses which were like only two days long and they cost like four thousand pounds i was like well i can't afford that just for two two days kind of just like you can't learn enough in two days um so i kind of scrapped that idea and once i'd made redundant at cineworld i had quite a bit of money given to me because of the redundancy and because the other cinemas at the time were part of a union so they worked out a deal so we didn't get screwed over um and I'd been had been watching YouTube, and you know, like most people had. Um, the funny thing is, when you when you're not making videos for YouTube, you don't really comment on videos. Um, and when you do make videos, you sort of do, you know, you pluck up the courage to, you know, write something down. But that's the funny thing is, the sort of silent majority, which I was a part of, you know, just watched videos and moved on. And I was watching, um, of course, like you know, that guy with the glasses and um, James Rolfe and you know. And um, I think it was Spoonie experiment, sort of, uh, I can't remember his name, Noah, something like that. Yeah, he'd, they'd right. been doing, they'd been, yeah, they'd been doing um, sort of comedic reviews. And I loved, you know, um, documentaries and I loved sort of learning more about particular movies. And um, I was obsessed with sort of special features on DVDs and Laserdiscs. I got into Laserdisc in the late 90s when the format was dying. So everything was, everyone was selling off their movies and players really cheap. Um, so I'd wanted to sort of make my own video, uh, about a particular movie I kind of loved, but knew it was rubbish. It was Superman four. And I wanted to sort of get my thoughts across on that and sort of provide some educational twist to it. And I'd done that and it, you know, it kind of, I shared it across, I said, I think I shared it on a few forums sort of dedicated to the Superman movies and people really enjoyed it. Um, it's not a video I'm not particularly proud of now because it's very embarrassing to, to listen to and watch because it's like whenever you make your own, videos or films whatever when you're young and you look back at them you're like oh my god that's embarrassing <laughs> um but it's uh but um it did well and then my friend said to me all oh, these is really good you should continue with this format and then i sort of every week i'd do another one but they're all quite short videos you know i wasn't really i, I never really critiqued movies really so to speak i, I talked about films with my colleagues at, at, at the cinema you know because we previewed movies we put the films together and stuff which was great but we always talk about films just one-on-one and just have a bitch and moan about what came out or what we loved about a particular film. So it was writing of a review and doing it for YouTube was a different experience because you just, it's your own views on this and how are people going to agree with you on that and how they're going to react. And at the time in 2011, it wasn't sort of, uh, I suppose, you know, if you're, if you're covering a particular movie, everyone loves that everyone, you know, you love that everyone hates you. You're going to get the toxic feedback, you know, but at the time it was quite a bit more of a mellow, sort of time on youtube from what from my experience anyway um 
and um yeah so i continue doing that and it's sort of you know uh sort of every every week or two i do another another video and they get longer and longer and um and um it sort of took off from there but it took a while though you know to sort of get a viewership and enough views on a video to sort of have the opportunity to make money and say hey i can do this for a living you know um so it took a couple of years so you i did it's about three years without earning any money doing it so you just it was all essentially it, it is a hobby that you treat as a job um and because i had that sort of uh money from being made redundant i was you know being a tight ass and sort of you know not spending too much so i could sort of sustain myself and I had to sort of live with my parents again you know um which was you know it wasn't too bad because my house you know with my parents was quite big so i just sort of you know just sit in my office or bedroom as it were and uh don't have to see them all day <laughs> to work till it was dinner time you know um so yeah so that was that was it really and it's sort of it's um sort of it becomes sort of second nature doing these things and you just uh year by year, years end up flying by you end up forgetting how long how many videos you've done how many reviews you've done and and um it's now eight years and uh, things have changed radically i think for me in the past two years um it's, it's been pretty exciting very nice and it is curious because like you said like your early uh videos where it's like you're just presenting the the kind of like the facts and the stories that you've heard about these movies like Superman 4. And mm. it is curious that like as mo- as the videos have gone along, you've like you've had that section where you give your final thoughts on the movie itself. Was that a conscious choice to like go from like having both an objective and subjective viewpoint on a movie as the videos went along? Um, I su- yeah, I suppose so. I mean, because my critiques were quite short. Normal, all the earlier stuff, I just, I was just, there was barely a minute or two. You know, I was more sort of having fun with just making a trailer or something for the movie at the beginning. You know, and I just sort of rattle off and some information um, because I, I knew at that point I was sort of building the structure of those videos where you had the trailer intro thing and you know how successful it was, the story, the produ- uh, production stuff, and. Uh, soundtrack section of video games because no one ever discussed the sort of video game stuff as part of the movie review and when it came to reviewing giving my thoughts at the end they just sort of expanded and expanded and expanded because the more i did the more confident i got and the more sort of you know you sort of see things more within a film and you know because you end up commenting more on how it's photographed how the performances are instead of being very kind of loose and sort of uh just cutting to the point going oh, i like this movie the end you know? <laughs> so you want it to be you know you want to say why why is this movie really good and why do you feel uh it's uh, important to you and, and to that generation and why things kind of work and don't work in a movie why doesn't it work and you know it's sort of also to try and be impartial you know with these things because no one makes a movie when as they always say no one goes into making a movie to make a bad movie just you know it's just you know their intentions are good mm-hmm. um so you just have to sort of understand their way of thinking to how the movie turns out and being fair on them and you know fair to the audience to say you're not totally biased but you know you can be biased you can if as long as you say that you say oh, i'm completely biased i love this movie i don't care what you think <laughs> you know it's you know it's your own opinion and views and some people love that and some people don't like that so you just have to sort of find a middle ground i think yeah i i mean you have to take into account like 
one of your favorite movies, Dick Donner's Superman, is very different from the Jean-Claude Van Damme movie Cyborg, where like they both have the same intentions to make entertainment movies, but it's just one had a, a massive budget and one did not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, ex- exactly, exactly. You know, um, Cyborg's just, you know, enjoyable schlock. And I had a chance early this year to see that actually on 35mm film. That's uh, what, Cyborg? Yeah. Wow, and that was it. Was actually my first time seeing it. I had seen the, tr- I had seen obviously your retrospective on it, but I had not seen the movie itself. And that was a curious thing. And I'm just like, this is. A, and <clears throat> halfway through it, I turned to my buddy. I'm like, this is actually pretty good. I mean, I, I guess I don't have like the highest bar when it comes to Van Damme movies. Van Damme as an actor has gotten better as he's gone along, but I, I and I, I'm like, I, I'm actually really digging this. And I went back to rewatch the retrospective and see how that was done. And I'm like. Wow, that's just really curious like, what they were able to do on such a tight budget. Yeah, I just love the sort of matte paintings in that movie. Um, sort of, it's, it's, I think it's like that maybe two or three to sort of expand the world of Cyborg. Um, but also, you know, the whole production problems. It was supposed to be Masters of the Universe two, and they'd used the you know the the clothes and that and stuff from that movie and sort of rejigged them into Cyborg and some of the set pieces and stuff like that. Yeah, it's a bit crazy, a crazy film. But it's, you know, it was supposed to be a bit of a disaster, but then they sort of edited it and saved it and it turned out all right for Canon. It was the last Canon movie, I think, we need to do oh well, okay financially uh, before they sort of, you know, went bankrupt. Went, uh, bankrupt. Mm-hmm. And, and speaking of saving movies, it just reminds me of a saying, because you said before you were a projectionist, there was an yeah. old saying that the the last person who gets to edit a movie is a projectionist. Yeah, I, I, yeah, that's very true. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just putting real one, real two, real three, four, five, and six together. And if it's a Christopher Nolan film, we'd probably be about ten reels, you know. Oh, <laughs> King yeah, Kong, Peter Jackson's King Kong. <laughs> that was nice. that was a funny thing. But when we had, um, we always get, often get notes from the director uh, when their films would turn up, like uh, on the Friday or the Thursday, something like or Wednesday or Thursday before the general release um peter jackson once wrote a letter and michael bay it would just be like it's a letter to all the projectionists and michael bay was just like turn the volume up that's his like (laughs) you know comment and peter jackson was just like oh this copy of king kong was a was a it was a direct intermediate or something of the premiere print something like that um yeah, some interesting stuff you you know sort of uh, you you find along the way, and, and uh, weird thing is actually there I put together I think that maybe the only print of the in the UK of Baba Hotep, the Bruce Campbell movie where Arrow, I think Arrow had distributed it or maybe Anchor Bay, um, and that was like the only print they did, so that went around the UK, but we got it first. So I was like, ooh, <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, and, and I'm sure since. Anybody who goes see movies on film, if you have like one print or something like that, you see it later in its run, like it, it will be beaten up a little bit. That's for sure. Oh, of course, yeah, because it's usually it'd be mostly be beaten up at the the head and tail end of that reel because someone's gone, oh, I love a frame of that. <laughs> you know, someone's cut bits. You know, want to keep to themselves. Um, but yeah, it's usually when the damage usually occurs if it's like a, if it's like if you're gonna if you're gonna go to the cinema and it's like oh it's a 35 millimeter print of the thing don't bother just don't bother because it'll be an old scuffed print and the whole film set in the snow so it'll just be all you can see all the scratches yeah i, I mean uh i saw really scott's alien on 35 or early this year for the 40th anniversary and it was just one reel was not pink 
Everything else oh, had really? gone magenta. Yeah, and it was it was literally the section when Dallas goes into the vents. That was like the only part that was really like truly clear. Everything else was kind of oh, shades of magenta. No. That's a shame because I saw I saw Alien in seventy millimeter, and that had, the color had gone on there. That had gone a weird orangey, muddy color. It was just like oh, bit of a shame. Yeah, and I, I just wonder if like those blow up prints for seventy. I wonder if they are more sustainable for degradation uh, de- uh de- degradation as they go along or not i'm not sure i really don't know it's just how they've been how they've been stored over the years and how they've been treated by the projectionists and stuff like that because i saw a, a print of die hard in 70 millimeter and that had come from a private collection it was from i think it was like uh, uh, the other university i think maybe birmingham or something like that they'd had a copy of it and it was mint absolutely mint condition and and the Dolby 6 track on that was incredible. It was like I was hearing sound effects I'd never heard before, like on the old DVD and the Blu-ray. So the sound mix is different for those home video format versions uh, compared to the original 6-track. Uh, nice. And, and I know like we've been talking about 35mm, but like you had reviewed earlier on in this year the 4K re-release of The Matrix and how you had commented on like it was the original color timing of the release and not the kind of overly green and tinted version that was later Blu-ray releases, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was um, that was really amazing what Warner Brothers had done with that. And obviously the cameraman, Bill Pope, had gone back and sort of took, taken out all the green they applied to the the first film once you know two and three had come to to come had come to DVD. Sort of trying to make more you know consistent visually, didn't they? Um, so actually, the Matrix trilogy on in 4K has all been. I think they've kind of dialed back a lot of the green in the sequels as well. So they look a bit more. They look. They look. They look like 35 millimeter again uh, to me. Um, so I mean, some of some of Warner Brothers 4K remasters have been a bit flaky, <laughs> such mm. as their Batman version. We've right. added teal throughout the entire film, which some people were like, shouting and complaining at me, saying, "That's Oliver. That's how it's supposed to look." And I was like, "Okay." Right, I'm going to message the second unit director of Batman, Peter McDonald, and I said, is this how the film looked? He goes, no. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, so it's, it's all a lie. Yeah, and, and like, that was the first thing when I noticed that in – because I, I made sure to see all four of those movies on the big screen, and like – it wasn't even like the teal was. I'm like, oh, that looks a little different, but it's the first gunshot that sounded different. And I was yeah. like, whoa, wait a second. Yeah. And so it took me a few minutes to get used to it. But mm. now hearing that Tim Burton wasn't happy with the original mix of 89, I understand why he'd want to go back and adjust it. Well, I think what someone had said, going uh, after the fact, it was after I'd done the review and stuff, in fact, maybe a week or two later, and um, they, people, uh, someone had found out that Tim Burton and Danny Elfman had no involvement with this release, so it was, it was all Warner Brothers' decision. Oh. Um, it may have been John Peters, who knows, you know, who decided to go, I don't like that anymore, let's change it, you know, because Batman is more, you know, it's just as much John Peters' movie as it is Tim Burton's as well, because he, he was a huge influence on that film. Yeah, despite just, just despite you know how we all think how you know how silly he is and ridiculous he is, you know, in, in regards to the whole Kevin Smith debacle, he is a character to say the least. That I think it's the most polite thing I could say about John Peters. But what mm. I was saying about the Matrix because I saw that they did a re-release of one week in AMC. Uh, AMC theaters did a one-week re-release in their Dolby Atmos theaters. Like that's how they were kicking oh. off their program. Oh, and. 
the color like i could see the film grain in this digital projection like that's how that's how fine this the projections they were for that however mm. there were people like talking near the front of the theater uh, during the previews and once the movie started like the logos came up there was p- a few people uh, a couple rows ahead of me told the people in the front to shut up and they started yelling back and forth and cursing at each other i'm like and i'm like oh come on guys the movie's just starting please and i'm wondering like i hope the movie drowns them out and the first punch that trendy throws shook the theater wow and i'm like okay i'm not gonna be worried about these people for the entire movie and i was (laughs) and like uh, the remaining of my drink like was like rattling in its 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 cup holder when neil was like taking the minigun to the uh, building trying to save morpheus and i'm like okay i was very happy with the Dolby Atmos uh, projection of it. And I, I assume it was the 4K uh, master that they were yeah. using for the projector. That's what I've done, yeah. Because I've, 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 I had Atmos installed into my in my sort of home cinema setup. It's kind of the, the minimum like version of Atmos. It's not doesn't contain the sort of ceiling speakers. But I've not tried out the Matrix actually yet. So I tried out the Batman 4K sort of Atmos track, which was a track was amazing. You know, it's really far more dynamic than it used to be but um yeah i need to i need to watch the matrix in that in that format nice and since you've gone along with all these retrospectives like which ones are you the proudest of as you've been doing this for so long um yes i i do get asked that question uh quite a lot i i, I think probably the alien ones i did i'm very i'm very happy with um in terms of like information and how they're edited and um my voiceover and stuff you know <laughs> my personal preference is like do i sound okay is that um my superboy uh ones i did i'm quite happy with the back to future one and two um and that's some of my more recent stuff like you mentioned the matrix i was you know that did i did you know it's the funny thing is it's like you think oh this is I'm not too sure about this review. Are, are people going to enjoy it, you know, or is it going to go well with the audience? And, you know, and then it, and it, when it does, it's, that's the biggest sort of surprise. So you sort of, even though my most popular sort of reviews are generally like from maybe two or three years ago, like, cause it's just back catalog, you know, when there's a new film coming out, it's like a sequel or a remake then people go back and watch those, you know? Um, so yeah. So there's generally the ones that sort of, obviously as well, I forget, I forgot to mention my Blade Runner, uh, review so yeah i think some of those ones like the, the ones that, that people love those movies in the 80s that people loved generally that have got done well my audience and um the ones that are sort of 30 minutes plus the ones i'm i'm happy with nice um i absolutely adored your tmnt 1990 review oh yeah and it's my recent recent one yeah yeah and like i like i was wondering because i don't own any of them on blu-ray and i'm wondering should like because you had recommended the German release of that, yeah. but I don't know if that's region two locked or not. I have not looked into it. That's a good question. Um, I think it is region three. I'll I'll let you know, Tim. I'll, I'll after after this interview, I'll I'll find out for you. <laughs> Thank you. But yeah, because that was a, that was a film I wanted to redo for ages because it was one of my early reviews as well. I'm just you know. My voice. There's no confidence in my voice on my old one, and there wasn't much information there, and I just kind of wanted to get across. Because what well, I didn't realise, it was only two, like, a couple of years later that we, um, after I'd done the review, that the sort of production problems of you know the director Steve Barron not getting on with the producers, you know, and the sort of the conflicts with the music choices and stuff like that. So that was something I I wanted to do, and John Dupre, the composer, had not talked about the score 
at all until and then finally got you know got released you know about a year ago and i was like yes finally we've got this we've got the music so it's like okay now it's time to do you know a proper review and, and that, that that's one of your rules that you will not do a retrospective unless you have a high quality version of the soundtrack available correct um well that's generally a a, a riding factor into doing one um I have done reviews where I couldn't get the soundtrack at all. There wasn't a, there wasn't one released, so you had to sort of go through. Usually with Hong Kong kind of action movies like City Hunter or, or Operation Condor, and I have a friend um, who's always really helpful. We're just like you know, if we can get the five point one track and break it down and take some of the score from it uh, where no one's talking. Cause sometimes they mix it in a way. It's, it's kind of like a fake kind of five point one where they've taken the stereo track and just sort of blast across these channels and sometimes the music just gets thrown into the rear channels if you take that music out the rear channels you've kind of got some of the score without any dialogue or sound effects leaking into it so you can use that to underscore what you're talking about um but generally it's, it's far more easier and it's, it's better for presentation wise anyway when you've got the original score i mean superboy i reviewed i, I there's no score available they never released kevin kinder's material uh, you know compositions for that that show so i just used the music from the superman films and it kind of worked so yeah i, I mean like the, the superboy show was kind of like in a, a vein of dick down and superman so it was appropriate yes, there could, yeah, you could use it and kind of get away with it and no one would no one would say anything you know no, it, it just seems to kind of fit you know oh totally and since like you've brought up like operation condor and a lot of the movies you've brought up and you've done retrospectives are are action movies uh, specifically which leads to the kind of the subject at hand here and so your documentary in search the last action heroes is a documentary on like the the definitive 80s action movie documentary so let's go back to the genesis of it how did that idea come about well it was um i think it was late well, late 2017, I had done a documentary on, uh, mentioning Superman again, uh, Superman 4, called uh, The Man of uh, Steel and Glass, or Glass and Steel. Um, and I sort of documented the sort of shooting locations uh, about that film. Uh, how they, you know, because Canon films were very cheap and they sort of shot it in the UK and used Milton Keynes to double for New York and they shot at LCD Studios, sort of Pineman Studios. Um, and that was done with my good friend Tim Partridge, who's a wonderful director. And I'd sort of produced that and sort of starred in it. And, you know, we'd been talking about doing it for years and sort of finally we made the effort to make it. And it, once I put it out, it did, you know, did well with my audience. And uh, someone who'd been following following me on Patreon, uh, Robin Block, you know, he saw it and loved it and wanted to meet up. So we met up in like early 2018 and he said, look, I, I, you know, I love your stuff, Ollie. Um, you know, he'd made documentaries before. Um, he's a couple of years older than me and, um, he wanted to work with me on something in future, but we didn't know what it, what it would be. Um, we'd, we sat in a pub and had a chat about the, you know, my ideas, but I, at the time I couldn't think of anything, but we want, but he said to me, it would be best to do it through crowdfunding. Um, the sort of, instead of using money out of my own pocket where the Superman four thing didn't, it was, you know, it, what, when it went, when it went on YouTube, you know, it got copyright claims in a couple of months and, you know, whatever, the, the ad revenue return on that was was pitiful in what you actually spent. So um, it was fine. It was it was more about you know the passion behind the project than actually kind of getting any return on it. So Robin had had thought of trying to think of ways to sort of boost my channel because he said Let, let's try and take you out of the sort of doing 
YouTube videos and, you know, sort of sitting at home and talking to a camera and writing scripts. Let's get you get you to these comic cons. Let's get you to do these kind of uh, talk to a live audience. And uh, we sort of dabbled with that with a couple of episodes um, on my channel. But the thing is, the comic cons we went to weren't particularly I don't think it was retailed for us. There were more um, sort of anime and video games and a lot of younger people there. And most of those people wouldn't be interested in, you know, you know, 80s or 90s action movies or, you know, you know, retrospectively kind of like interested in what I did. Mm. So we sort of tried to, uh, well, we kind of scrapped that idea, actually. And then we thought about, I said to Robin, Let, let's try and focus on a documentary about the 80s action genre and how it's kind of evolved from from what from what was you know like rambo and commando to what we have today and what we thought was a good idea and we sort of bashed out a few ideas on what it would be the title of it and um we'd i said to i'm trying to think now with robin had uh robin had taken on position of being a producer and he was going to basically manage this production essentially hire me to sort of make this for him um well i'll just be the director and writing it and he robin had come across um uh, Timon Singh had written a book called Born to be Bad. I think maybe Timon had emailed us or Robin had emailed him. I can't remember that, the genesis of that. But he had, because Timon had written this book, it had all these actors in it, these, these, these uh, kind of B-movie stars or A-listers in, in their day um, who, who played villains in movies. And he had the opportunity, that window there, to sort of contact them and say, look, do you want to be part of this 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 production because um, we've done you know done a Kickstarter and stuff we finally did, we obviously we did the Kickstarter in the summer of 20, of uh, 2018 and I obviously never done a Kickstarter before you know it was very very unsure how to approach it um, but Robin obviously for Robin as well it was kind of new ground but he you know had produced stuff before you know he'd run companies uh, very successful companies and so i you know i trusted him to to know what he was doing and, and it, it seemed to have paid off um we i remember it was crazy because we we're trying to shoot the trailer for it the original kickstarter trailer well i'm in this kind of dvd rental store because we tried to find a location and there was um Obviously, nowadays, there's no blockbuster or anything like that. There's no rental stores, really, which I thought there wasn't any at all. But I discovered there's about still 600 rental stores in the UK and all kind of scattered around. Hmm. Um, and we managed to get the permission to shoot there. Um, and the day before, we were trying to write a script. And because Robin had um, – we obviously reached out to my audience to say, do you want to you know, contribute to this documentary? Do you want to be part of the sort of – researching process and we've got a lot of talented people come forward and one was called uh, witch reese who was actually a you know patron of mine on youtube you know a fellow you know youtube fan um which was wonderful and um, i got to know him very well and we'd he'd helped me sort of work on the script for the trailer so the day before trying to get it all done you know and uh, we got to finally got to shoot at the uh, location and we cut out a lot of this a lot of the material in the script to sort of condense it all down make it more punchy um but yeah so once that kind of launched it did you know surprisingly well in the first two weeks and then it sort of you know continued and continued and we managed to get the money we needed to sort of shoot the interviews which would take place in la that and uh time and sing who had experience of interviewing people you know more so than me um that we gave it that position to him to shoot maybe like 80 percent of the interviews um in october of last last year um so and then i did a few in the uk so the first 
interview I shot um, was uh, with Peter McDonald in August. I think I think it was August of last year. And uh, that was really, really exciting because Peter McDonald had obviously worked on Superman. He worked on Batman, but then he, you know, his career was second unit director, you know, worked on Rambo two, then directed Rambo three and worked a lot with Van Damme. So he had a lot of really funny stories like behind the scenes. Some things, obviously he told me some really, you know, like stuff he couldn't say on camera, you know, (laughs) behind. So I was like, Oh, it's amazing, juicy trivia. Oh my God, it's incredible. Um, but obviously on camera, he's like professional and, you know, and, uh, but also he's, some of his humor comes through. So he doesn't, you know, he doesn't hold back swearing, I think like that. So, um, so yeah, so Peter uh, features uh, quite predominantly through the uh, documentary. Well, that's fantastic, and um, with this like kind of like blowing up and having the very successful um, campaigns, did that like boost your signal as a YouTuber in general? Like, because you have you have not just done the documentary and that's it. You have continued to put out work for YouTube and everything because you have your like Patreon and everything, and you have supporters to like. And also the fun, the funds coming from YouTube, was that like a influx of people subscribing to your channel once the documentary was on the way? It's hard to say. I mean, because it's it's um because before I we'd done the Kickstarter and you know the whole you know campaign thing, I was up like, about ninety thousand subscribers, and then it was doing the course of the whole thing. I got up to like a hundred thousand now. I think it's one hundred and forty something like that, just under. Um. So it's hard to know if that sort of that um, sort of advertisement of that documentary and the Kickstarter sort of made people more aware of who I was. I'm sure that there's a probably a 50 percent uh, number of those people that subscribed were through that. Um, it's hard, really hard to know. Um, but yeah, it was a sort of difficult juggling act uh, because at first we had we had another editor on board who would be handling a lot of the um, the workload. Um, but you know, the sort of first cut of the documentary didn't really didn't really please me. And it was it was fine because he'd done a lot of the grunt work. He'd done a lot of sort of you know watching all the footage and making notes. And it you know, but it didn't didn't work. So we'd you know, I'd taken it off his hands and um he'd moved on to another project and you know, on his next project did he did stellar work. Um so we had another editor come on board with me, Michael Peristeris, who was another, you know, follower of my work. Because it's it's great, but you don't really realise that the funny thing is my 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 Robin Block, the producer, always tells me, Oliver, your audience is so vital. Um, you really need to sort of take advantage of who they are and, and what skills they can bring to you. Um, so every time we sort of ask people questions, say, look, can you help us with this and that? And people will come forward and they're fucking incredible. You know, they're really good. And Michael was a viewer and, you know, uh, and he'd done corporate videos, done commercials and, uh, he jumped on board and, you know, <coughs> and helped me reconstruct it into something that was far more punchy and far more in, in what I wanted where this basically the, the story with this because obviously it's advertised as kind of 80s action documentary but it's, it's, it's more the sort of genesis of it all it's sort of the evolution of the action genre where it starts out from the western period and works its way through to the 60s and 70s where 70s we got kung fu movies and the gritty crime thrillers like French Connection and Bullet and then it goes through and kicks off with the 80s with Mad Max and uh, Conan and then the 80s obviously was the 
section of the documentary which which is kind of most celebrated um and then it goes into the 90s where you kind of have the sort of everyday man sort of taking over where it was kind of that all stemmed from die hard um then you've got things like speed and then you've got where the actors professionally trained actors then becoming action stars where the action stars who were dominating the sort of the 80s decade were had uh, sort of fallen by the wayside and come the late 90s so you had things like you know Stallone doing Eraser and uh, End of Days and Stallone doing Daylight and, um, you know, and sort of action movies that weren't quite hitting the mark. Um, so then it sort of and it goes into the sort of contemporary movies of today. Uh, so that's how it's all being constructed. Um, and there's a bit more humour thrown into it from its original conception. It's gone through many cuts um, because, um, you know, things, you know, runtime was always a, a key thing, you know, um, I would I would love to have it be three hours, you know, because I did have a three hour cut, um, which I was like, this is really good. I'm oh, very wow. happy with this. And then it was like, and then um, and the producer's like, no, all of it's got to be two hours, you know, because the cost, it's the cost, it's a huge amount of money. If you make something that's an hour longer, that's an hour's more footage that's got to be checked for legal mm-hmm. and the manufacturing. It's just just don't realize, you know. Um, but as fans, you know, you always want things to be longer, but not necessarily. I mean, something can be a good length and you feel satisfied with its runtime and you know you've learned a lot walked away don't feel shortchanged in any way but two hours is, we've got it down to I think it's two hours three because we had a uh, because you're always always editing in a sort of bubble you know you're sharing it with friends who you know respect you but also don't want to never sometimes they may not be fully honest because they want to hurt your feelings so you know they don't like it. They probably won't say, or if they see something's a problem, they won't say. They'll say, "Oh, I love it. I love it." So we had to. We had a focus group of people who um, who were backers of the project, and uh, we showed it to like thirty people who they signed up. You know, there could be more if more people had wanted to see it early. Um, but I think I think with some people, there's just like, "Oh, I'd rather wait to the finished thing. I don't want to spoil it." Right. So um, thirty people watched it. Um, 28 loved it and two were, uh, you know, <laughs> were, were, weren't happy because particular stars weren't in it. So, you know, I thought, well, 28 out of 30. I was like, okay, fine. <laughs> That's great. Um, so that, that took a lot of pressure off me because, you know, you're thinking to yourself, well, this is, I'm, I think this is good, but, you know, people that have paid to see it, you know, have now a small percentage have seen it and gone, is really good so they gave us feedback as well you know not everything you know, even though they were positive and loved it they gave us feedback and were fair and we took on that sort of feedback and improved it some more so we made it a little bit longer as well so um yeah so that's been and that, that's a lot of you know juggling back and forth with that the past year and also with youtube because you'd mentioned earlier about sort of doing both things and and also because tim you know you are um, follower of my work so you can you can see where you know there's things where I've not done anything for like three weeks and suddenly I come back with stuff there's always those sort of you know things happen and things don't so but yeah I've managed to sort of balance both of both the channel and doing the documentary which is takes up a lot of your time because um, I've never done something like this before you just feature length working with other people you know you I'm not I'm not I'm always used to working by myself. I don't have someone over my shoulder going, oh, can you change that? Oh, I don't like that. You know, it's always just me. You know, and mm-hmm. people 
you know, that, that can complain would be the comments on the video after the fact when you've done it. Well, I can't change that now. You know, so I still get people from three years ago saying, oh, I know it's getting. Could you change this? I'm like, no, <laughs> it's <done> years <laughs> ago. I can't retroactively do it. Oh, I forgot to go back and redo a redux, but that's not the point. Um, but uh, yeah, so that was a challenge, you know, working with more people and making sure everyone is sort of, you know, happy, you know. Um, but it's been fun as well. You know, I've made a lot of new friends along the way and um, met some very talented people. And um, so I'm just, I'm just excited to watch it with an audience, but also terrified at the same time. Um, and that's it's on schedule, you know, for sort of late October, early November. I'll probably, be, you know, I'm sure it'll be done middle of October. Then, but you've also got I've got to work to the time schedule of the manufacturers. So um, I just want to get this because at the moment I just got you know finished the end credits when everyone you know provides us with their updated names and stuff, you know, whatever, so I can make sure everyone is credited correctly. You know, and then I'm then I'm done. <laughs> and it, it is it's curious because a lot of my podcasts here on the show run long like especially like my friend mike and i will most shows are two and a half to three hours in length because both of us have the gift to gab and we just kind of build off each other however i was caught in a conversation recently saying there is a gift in brevity and, and it was kind of ironic coming from me as a person who can't shut up and so and like wants <laughs> things to be longer. But there is something like two of the greatest action movies of the 80s is like The Road Warrior and Robocop and Road Warrior is like 90 minutes. Yeah, and it is. Robocop's like an hour and 40, maybe. Some, yeah. 90 minutes is a sweet spot in it, I think, for an action movie because I just watched a new Rambo film and that's 89 minutes and then you've got Rambo... First Blood's 93, then number two's 96, and number three's 101 minutes, and number four's like 93 or something, 91 minutes. So you, that is sort of the runtime of most kind of action movies. I think that's what comedies really. Comedies should really cl- clock in at around an hour 30 or an hour 40. But if it goes to two hours, you're like, fucking hell, that's a bit long. It's like a Judd Apatow movie. It's like one reel too long, you know? Right. <laughs> Um, and so like it, it is curious that you think like the first term yeah, that's like an hour and like forty four minutes in length, mm. and but then of course all of uh, Cameron's movies going forward got progressively longer and longer, um, and but it, it, it is curious like when doing the kind of preparation for this kind of documentary, what did you have to do? What kind of research did you had to have like done before you sat down and started doing interviews on your part, as well as like what Robin mm. had to do on his part, shooting the interviews in LA? Sure. Um, well, it was, it was time and had shot the interviews in LA. Robin had organized a lot of these sort of, uh, the sort of the, the crew as it were. Um, because Robin had hired uh, Jim Coons, I think he's called, um, to shoot the LA stuff, and he'd done loads of documentaries before, so it was just like a you know easy job for him. Um, for, but beforehand, me and Simon had met up and met up and discussed what the plot would be. I knew what the plot was. I've written a synopsis. It was just a three. We sort of broke it down to a three act structure, and then we'd together written the questions, generalized questions that would fit the narrative. And then the other questions would be tailored for that individual to discuss particular movies. So, you know, Ronnie Cox, you talk to him about his career and the genre. Then you talk about Total Recall and Robocop separately and Beverly Hills Cop, whatever. Um, and same with everyone else, you know, so that was it. So you'd, how it's constructed, 
because original cut was more about the genre itself and the sort of business of it all and it was kind of a bit dry so i've kind of structured it in a way it's a bit like the electric boogaloo canon documentary so it's like you know 82 it's like you know conan first blood 83 it's like lone wolf McQuaid with chuck norris and you've got beverly hills cop and then you've got 48 hours or well, 48 hours is 982 but you know sort of that going through each year we think ah oh, 80 you think oh 86 is coming up what's that going to be that's going to be robocop um you know aliens sorry then you've got like you know goes into robocop and predator and then die hard and so you sort of see in that sort of decade where things become high concept so you can kind of tell where you are um so yeah, when Timon had to, Timon had the, a difficult task of actually kind of getting all the interviews to fit in, into a certain schedule because he had to go out in October for like a week, I think it was like two weeks, maybe just under two weeks to fit everyone in. Um, so he'd be doing like three interviews in one day and then, um, like things like composer Brad Fidel, who did Terminator 1 and 2 and Joining Mnemonic and True Lies, he came over to the UK because his daughter, uh, married a man in England, uh, an English chap. So he comes over now and again to see his see his daughter so um he'd rent a property in london and we went around his house and um met his wife and it was it was amazing because you kind of went in and um we talked to brad and his wife comes in and and it was it was like i always say to people when i talk about this experience it was like going around your friend's house and meeting their parents <laughs> and sort of getting on with them really well you know just like that you know and brad was just like what do you want to know what do you, what do you want to talk about and he just sort of just rattled off and it was amazing you know we chatted for like an hour and a half and uh loads of great conversations but it was interesting that he didn't like action movies you know it wasn't it wasn't his thing but you know he was happy to be a part of the whole experience and that's the thing because even though these people who are making these movies don't really you know sometimes they're not they don't see why people are passionate about one said film or like Paul Verhoeven, you know, he's not interested in looking to the past, you know, retrospectively, or he'll talk about his films. Of course, he'll talk about Robocop and, you know, how, you know, the stress of making it and, you know, and how much, you know, he's, you know, he appreciates that film and same with Total Recall, but he doesn't look upon it like we do. And sort of nostalgically in love with the past. He, he looks to, looks to the future and that's, you sort of have to kind of respect that and not be like, Oh, what? Well, you know, eighties was far better films than today, you know, whatever, you know. So you have to, you know, uh, understand that they are thinking about, you know, what to do next and not look to the past. I mean, I guess that it adds something to it because they're not so close to it. They can have an objective view for it. Like, I think it works perfectly for Verhoeven with Robocop because he's satirizing what he think America is at that time with Robocop. And so because he, he was not really involved with it, so he can kind of like lift up a mirror to what he saw, what the Reagan era of America was like at the time. And he can see be kind of objective in that point. Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, he'd add some, you know, I, I put some because I published some on the on the on the Indiegogo and Kickstarter page, uh, the sort of deleted scenes. And there's him talking about the crusades he was going to make with Arnold and um and with obviously with Karolko, Mario Kazar, and um, they went obviously and made Cutthroat Island instead, which turned out to be a massive bomb. And uh, Paul Verhoeven was like, you know, very upset. I think still a bit disappointed about it, it never got made. Um, but Mario Kazar was like, you know, <laughs> Cutthroat Island, you know, it wasn't my fault. <laughs> you know, it, was, it was kind of like, you know, it was. I had Michael Douglas in it and then Gina Davis and then Manny Harling got married and Michael Douglas is like, I can't work in this scenario. 
you know the director's now in you know married to the star in a co-star you know um he sort of you know he, he didn't want to work in that environment and um, he'd left and sort of had to find someone else to fill his shoes and you know all the sets had to be changed and stuff the new director and stuff so yeah it's all a bit of a bit of a mess but you know it's it was um but they could i, I, I think with the crusades they just couldn't confirm a budget that was it was just it was just kept escalating and they couldn't give him a definitive like this is going to cost x amount so he was like right i'm gonna make cut for island um so yeah that's unfortunate and i know cutthroat has gotten the reputation in years as like oh the movie that killed the film company and mm. it's just like it's like a little unfortunate same thing way like how heaven's gate is blamed for killing united artists um, yeah yeah big epics that sort of you know you know get too bloated and don't get returned but i think mario kazar said he, he didn't lose money on it i'm like well <laughs> the, studio, the studio went under so i think i think in terms of uh over time it's may have recouped something i don't know but it's you know pre-sales and you know and um i pres- i presume the distributors who bought it probably lost money not him in that regard yeah i mean like that's that phantom hollywood math that sometimes movies make hundreds of millions of dollars and still are at a loss and you're wondering like how is that possible yeah yeah exactly i mean most movies i mean something like in the case of john carter that was apparently the biggest box office bomb of all time i'm sure it's probably made some money back for the studio um but yeah i mean it's they, they you know they're all I'm sure they were pretty smart with their money, know how to get a return on from their losses, or you know how to you know de- home video sales or broadcasting. But yeah, it's um I don't think I mean listen, I think I think there's a a couple of rare occurrences where a film could seriously tank a studio. Um, I think maybe what's that company? I think it's a company that produced or financed um, Valerian. I think it's STX something like that. I don't know. They're, yeah, I think cause that that was a massive bomb. And that I think that that may have I think that I think the studio went up for for sale or something like that or were trying to find extra funding to sort of keep them secure. Yeah, I think so. But also like bringing up Superman again. I mean, you think of like Superman sure. Returns. You're like wondering like like how can that movie cost three hundred million dollars? Like I I, I scratch my head at that. Yeah, it's crazy. I, th- I think they they'd missed, they'd spent a lot of money beforehand on like the failed projects. I think that's why that budget. That budget accum- uh, covers everything in terms of paying off Brando Estate to mm. use his likeness, and for the and that cleared the stuff up for Superman to the Donner Cut. And also, as I said, mentioned the sort of the starting points of the production with J.J. Abrams' version and McGee's version and Tim Burton's. I think they just bunched all that money together and sort of added it on. Um, but Superman Returns, I, I presume, it's kind of budget it had just for that production was probably about two twenty two fifty. But I don't really see that on screen. Um, because obviously they're shooting digital as well, maybe because of the new cameras, but you know, you don't have to, you know, develop all that film. Um, I think just, um, I think, I think maybe just sort of misspending, maybe, I think really, um, because a lot of the stuff is like they could have done within camera, but they shot a lot of CGI, you know, way too much CGI, like the flying stuff, you know, you think, well, wait a minute, you know, you've got this amazing kind of green screen stuff in a couple of shots and the rest of it's like close-ups of brandon routh and cgi i'm like what are you doing what a waste of money you've got him it's putting for the camera you know oh well yeah i, I guess the same thing you kind of like attribute to me justice league's budget as well other than the reshoots but mm. probably the george miller justice league 
money or budget probably went into the their possibly Tim. Possibly Tim. You know, it's um, I, I don't know what they put aside or you know say. Well, that money's now going to be taken from there because they've already spent X amount. You know, in pre-production. You know, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's 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 a bit of a mess, really. But yeah, Superman Returns has probably still got the biggest budget, hasn't it? I presume, or possibly. I don't know. I think something else is probably bloated. Oh, oh, Avengers Endgame, isn't it? That costs like a stupid amount of money because I think obviously Endgame and all the one before. Um, Infinity War. Infinity War. Yeah, that's one big bulk, isn't it? That's one big chunk. So it's like probably like 500 million or something stupid. But, you know, they made their money back like five times that or 10 times that, you know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, most successful film ever made. Yeah. Now, <laughs> I mean, uh-huh. yeah, I mean, un- unadjusted anyway. But like, yeah, let's take the, the our budgets, the GOP of several countries put together to make this movie, and yeah. it's just ridiculous in that regard. But with the interviews that you were doing, like, who's the first one interview for documentary uh, for In Search of Last Action Heroes? I was mentioned earlier, it was Peter McDonald. Oh, it was Peter uh, McDonald, okay. Yeah, yeah director of uh, Rambo 3. And then um, we had a break, and then it was like October, boom, L.A. stuff. Um, and then it sort of, course of the beginning of 2019, we get little ones, we get extra ones here and there that come along, where due to people's schedule. Um, and then the last one was really, uh, who was the last one? It was uh, Scott Atkins. He was the last one to sort of get done because of his schedule as well because he was making stuff in other countries. We had tried, you know, we we had Richard Donner on board um, very early on, actually. He said, yeah, great, let's do it. And then suddenly he had to have surgery. And then suddenly like, the following year, he's just like, no, I'm not doing it. Just like, uh, okay. <laughs> so you can't do much about that. You know, once they say no, they say no. Um, we tried to get John Claude Van Damme. We tried to get Stallone and we tried to get Dolph Lundgren. And we were so close to getting Van Damme. So, so close to signing a contract. And he was just like, at last minute, no, not doing it. You know, just changed his mind. And Dolph Lundgren, you know, I think he had a, well, we're talking to the PA or his agent and they're just kind of messing us around. And, um, cause Dolph was kind of shooting here and he's over there. And it was just like, it just, you know, it was just um, a bit of a bit of a mess, and Aussie Stallone and stuff we'd reached out to very early on, but their agent was um, very difficult. Um, it's like a force field, it's like a brick wall in between the star and you, and you got to try and penetrate that wall, which is basically the agent. And um, you know, so that was and difficult because that agent represented four other actors we want to talk to. And they'll just like, no. So the thing is, when you're doing these kind of documentaries or want to speak to a particular star or director or whatever, um, it's often best to go through their PA, not their agent, because their agents are often a pain in the ass. <laughs> so um, or in, if, if or if you can contact them, you know, directly through either a friend or something, then you know that would be to your benefit. Um, but, yeah, so that was. That was that was the most difficult aspect was trying to get through to people that you really want to talk to and so but in the, the day I'm you know the people we got I'm extremely proud of and they all did all provided us wonderful interviews you know some some were just absolute pros at it done it before so many times so just go you know Cynthia Rothrock you know interviews like 20 minutes 25 minutes but it's just like it's stellar because she knows exact she's totally on point. Or what she or what you know to in answering the questions and discussing her career and those vital moments in that decade 
Um, so yeah, so you know, I, w- I would have loved to have, have Arnold and stuff like that, but you know, it's actually we were close to getting Arnold, but he had to go and shoot additional scenes for Terminator Dark Fate in Bulgaria, and then he was going to be coming back and doing some political videos, <coughs> and um, and that kind of. I think then he just became too busy. I was just like, no, <laughs> such a shame, you know, but can't help it. But, you know, we could have, we could, I suppose we could have got him later on, but then the documentary will be delayed even more and more just to get one individual. And I think as a whole, as it is now, um, I'm, you know, I think people will be, will be, will be very happy with it. Oh, I'm sure they will be, but like it is, I mean, I guess that's the point of the agent is to protect their client. And, but, like you said, it might be to a little bit of a detriment to people like yourself who want to interview him or like want to work with him in some kind of capacity. I mean, that's that story I told about you previously when we spoke about recently that like B. Arthur's agent um, didn't take the offer from Disney seriously because she was offered the right of uh, the the role of Ursula in The Little Mermaid, and mm. B. Arthur never knew about it. And then she found out years later after she ran into the filmmakers after The Little Mermaid had gone on to become a classic, and. I guess it is unfortunate you kind of wish like, oh, if only if I could speak to them directly, they would make the decision. They would probably be game for it. But of the interviews that you do have, was there one that really other than maybe like Brad Fidel, who's like just very warm and kind of like welcoming? It was there an interview that really surprised you and you were kind of like, wow, you were taken aback by? Um, that's a good question. I oh. Shane Black was quite an interesting one um, because, you know, there was issues you know, because was, he's discussing the theme of you know, he's discussing Predator and he sort of get to the Predator. And um, I, he wasn't particularly you know keen to talk about that film for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and, he, you know, he, I don't think he particularly likes that film. Um, and there was things like how the character of, um, you know, Riggs, um, had changed in Lethal Weapon, things like that. So, and also how Shane Career's been influenced by what he's read, you know, in terms of he's a very well-read person. So he reads a lot of detective novels and a lot of his ideas don't come from films, they come from books. And that's what people find when you say, people obviously find so refreshing when they see see something he's written or, you know, um, it, it doesn't feel like it's copied something else. It's actually come from a book that he's been inspired by, which probably no, no half people haven't read. Um, as a lot of people don't do anymore, a lot of people don't read anymore. Um, I've myself, I got back into reading because I had not read. You know, I obviously read magazines or read stuff online as people do, but you, you know, you don't. I've actually got back into reading proper books again, a proper book. You know, mm-hmm. um, well, actually, I, I, I actually for the first, well, actually, first time I ever read the Jurassic Park book by Michael Crichton, and I really enjoyed the book. But it's like there's moments in the book where action does not translate well to book in written form. Mm. It's like, it's like, and this happened and then, and then this happened and then that happened. I'm like, it's so boring. I just want all the stuff I like about Ingen and the sort of about the, the mystery behind Hammond and stuff like that. I found really, really interesting. And that's what a book does so well. Um, but yeah, so I think Shane Black's probably the, you know, the most interesting in terms of like surprising me. Um, it's, I mean, it's over 30 interviews and it's always, I think they're all kind of quite fascinating. They have their own fascinating elements to them. Um, but everyone was always, you know, no one was difficult. Everyone was really 
game to do it. Um, you know, as, as Shane Black brings up a lot about superheroes in the sort of the genre, how Rambo became essentially a superhero come Rambo two, and Zach Penn talks a lot about like a lot a lot about comic books as well. So how things sort of changed and shifted, come sort of later part of the sort of the genre because you know action just having cops running around shooting each other and shooting the bad guys, there's only so much you can do with that. So it then became sort of high concept with science fiction and and horror, and then come the sort of the nineties it was. More the comic book elements because you know could you say because scott atkins says on camera which i put in the end credits where he's like dark man you know is that is that an action movie you don't know it's like but it's is it a horror movie you know so it's it's difficult to so what can you define really as a proper action film um and we try to sort of address that with this documentary because you could say because well, when we had the focus group people were like oh you're missing this film or that film i'm like well that film was not an action film talking about that's a science fiction film there's nothing to do with action <laughs> um so yeah it's what people perceive it as you know um so yeah so you know, things like you know, could you do we don't we don't really cover batman you know but they those films have action stuff in them of course but you know like tim burton's batman and the sequels but they are comic book movies and you're doing you're dealing with a different that means you've got to cover far more sort of films within a, in a within a runtime so you have to sort of you know, decide where you're going to go with it and what films you're going to cover and stick to that. Well, yeah, and it is curious. And uh, a friend of the show who's been on this podcast and he's a co-host of my other podcast, Guy Milks, he, he when it, like, a lot of us in our group, like, we'll have, like, a scarathon. We'll try to watch a horror movie once a day for the month of October. And he has Darkman in his catalog. He considers that a horror movie, so... There are people who do consider Darkman to be a horror movie, even though it's like a comic book movie and it has elements of action and comedy in it. Yeah, yeah, because Sam Raimi's, you know, his films have everything, so um, it's hard to, yeah, I mean, it's, it's more clear cut with Evil Dead, like the first one, that's a, that's a horror movie. Mm-hmm. And then number two is like a horror slash comedy, and number three is kind of more comedy than horror, you know. And Darkman has. As you mentioned, you know, it's has many elements that sort of doesn't really you can't redefine really it as one thing. Oh yeah, but also uh you have a one legged man with a machine gun for a leg. I mean like, that is <laughs> yeah. funny. no matter who you are, that is funny. And what was it? It's a pink elephant he's trying to get for uh, Francis McDormand. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. like, take the fucking elephant. Like, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. I, I, who he, he, like, bends his finger. <laughs> oh, oh. The camera just spins around in a, you know, 360. It's so good. Exactly. And so, obviously, that you're in the UK. Like, do you have to do a lot of traveling within the UK for these interviews? No, 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 no. Not, not, not really. It's just, it is just literally traveling to, a, you know, a location in the UK, which wasn't that far, about an hour or two on train it's easy peasy <laughs> you, you spend more time literally just transferring data from the shoot onto your computer you know or like or in like a, you get, get all the footage and you go you go to a cafe or somewhere and you've got a copy all, all from a you know sd card or whatever onto your mac your laptop and you're just like oh it's taking like it's gonna take four hours you're like oh my god <laughs> you know so, um so you have to sort of wait just i'll just say like give me that memory card i'll give it to you back when i next see you um so yeah, the, the most you know the most travel there was was for time and uh, the producer, you know, he, he went and interviewed in LA, so you know, that was an exciting thing, thing for him. You know, it would have been great, you know, to go out there myself, but you, you know, you, we are push push for time, and you need someone who's confident to do it straight out straight out the gate. You know, and Timon was very skilled at that. 
and um i i became more skilled with that over doing more and more because i you know did i co interviewed peter mcdonald and i did brad fidel and um and and ian nathan ian nathan actually i forgot to mention uh was probably the biggest surprise actually because he he was he, he'd written alien the vault book there's a terminator one called the vault and he's recently put out a book a book out uh, about peter jackson i think he's now working on a book about ridley scott um ian nathan worked for empire magazine um doing its heyday um and he'd be on this sort of film discovery show that's on cable in the UK or Sky Satellite. And I, I watched it all the time. I thought, this guy is brilliant. Let's talk to him about the genre. And I, you know, time and sorted it out and went down to meet Ethan, uh, meet Ian. And he was just incredible. You know, he was just it's, it's no ego. You know, he's so knowledgeable, had a great opinion on these movies. It was fair. And I've used him, you know, you know, throughout the documentary. And um, he's now appearing in the upcoming science fiction documentary in search of tomorrow. Um, but yeah, Ian was a great find. And I hope, you know, he becomes more popular after this and people are more aware of him. He's in the recent documentary called Memory, which is the one about Giga's alien and Dan O'Bannon as well. And about the sort of early concepts of the of the creature in the film and he pops up in that he shot that interview like two years ago i believe but um yeah so ian's probably one of the biggest highlights for me and he was like a guy you know no one really knew about i mean obviously you know if you if you're in that business you you should be aware of ian nathan but it's for for regular punters they'll be like who's this guy you know he's amazing <laughs> it's like yep he's great um so hopefully um yeah um people will come to appreciate what he has to say Nice. Um, I actually do have Ethan Nathan's book on Peter Jackson. Oh, good. Yeah, and it is it is just so immersive and so knowledgeable. Like, uh, I've lost a few just countless hours. It's like, okay, I'm gonna I'll read a chapter, and then <laughs> I'm just like, okay. And uh, I didn't know how involved Miramax was in the pre production of the the Lord of the Rings uh, series and everything, and the the trying to get that to new line cinema eventually and the kind of uh stakes and like how long the pre-production process was and i got it because i wanted to cover the lord of the rings movies on my podcast do reviews of them and Mm. i like to do as much research as possible and i'm like and i was thinking myself all right here's gonna be an hour of just me reading off notes from this book here without my co-host speaking because i'm like oh there's just so much detail in there and I'm yeah. kind of looking forward to see what he has to say for your documentary. Mm. And you were saying like you have so much data and footage of these interviews because I know there's some people who were listening who might be want to become documentarians in their first place. So like, what kind of camera and editing software did you, you and your team use for this documentary specifically? There was um, I, I'm not particularly sure on the cameras we'd use, but we shot mainly in 1080p. But there was some some interviews are shot in 4K. Um, and we we had early on said oh let's shoot a two camera setup and then the producer's like no 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 but too much footage you know you won't end up using camera b so we shot a single camera and then we came to edit it was just like and you have people when they're on camera they go ums and ahs and they stutter like both me and you do naturally <laughs> everyone does you know you you sort of forget you, you know forget your train of thought and um or they want to repeat what they said so you and so you have to having a two camera setup, you can cut around a lot of those things. 
And with single camera, you can't. So you have to sort of, you know, find creative ways to sort of cover those things up. Um, and so come the horror documentary in search of tomorrow, no, in search of darkness, sorry. And the next one, you know, obviously there's a, a two camera setup. Um, but um, I, I think also with cameras, if you're shooting in the UK, you have different frame rates to the American cameras. So, you know, whatever 60 frames is in the USA, the cameras over here will shoot in 50. So because it's PAL, nails the NTSC. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to sort of, you know, convert things to be one frame rate. So everything with this is 2398. Um, and editing wise, um, it's it's on two workstations. So Michael's doing editing on Adobe Premiere and I'm editing on Final Cut Pro 10. Um, so, my, you know, Michael's a PC user and I'm a Mac user. So, um, and yeah, so the, the difficulty thing, difficult thing would be is like, you know, you can, there is software to sort of convert XML files from a Premiere to work on a Mac, but then it's a little bit of a buggers model trying to get them all to work properly. Um, so I said to Michael, look, he, you do, Michael did, the beginning of the documentary to 85 and I took over and did 86 to the end and did the intro, uh, like the, you know, opening sequence. Mm. Um, so yeah, so there's luckily Michael had watched my stuff for so long. He knew my style of editing and he knew how to copy me. And, um, so it's, it should be kind of seamless, you know, when you watch it, think, Oh, is, is, is you, you, I don't think you'd be able to say, Oh, that's, that's all of us, you know, it'd just be like it's consistently throughout. Then obviously because, Doing the edits, you know, Michael would send me his and I'd make cuts to that sort of kit because you know, Michael would, you know, would be a little bit loose with time on things. I'm like, Michael, that's too long. You know, you need to put it down <laughs> using too many clips. Get rid of them. He's like, oh, no, it's really good. It's like, you know, I was like, no, no. The thing is, you know, what you have to, you do have to, they always say kill your darlings, as it were, sort of cut things down. We never lost any interviews. We never lost like a talking head. Mm-hmm. But it's like what you have to cut back first is the clips. But also the clips give it energy and the punch and, you know, and helps kind of show something more than just a talking head. So you have to sort of be, you know, uh, considerate on what you're going to cut. And um, sometimes it was just like someone's talking, but you've got a clip over them. But then there'll be like gaps when they're talking. You could cut their you know, their speech down, as it were, their anecdote. So it's a bit more faster paced. So that's what I did generally to sort of condense things down without losing anything. And then when you obviously submit everything for legal checks, for fair use checks, they come back and go, well, you've used this clip for too long. You've got to make changes here. So we did that. And then actually kind of improved the edit a little bit. So when you've got like a, a, a trailer we're playing, we've cut it in half and then had a talking head, then played the rest of the clip. So it kind of flows a bit more kind of naturally now instead of being chunk a big chunk of footage than a f- talking head. Um, so yeah, so yeah, that was, um, that was sort of things we used. And it also, the other thing that comes with it is sound mixing as well. Cause you know, I'm, you know, I, I don't go around saying I'm a pro with, with sound. So you have to sort of learn a few things along the way and, and making, making sure spending more time on the sound to make sure everything is correct and well balanced. Um, because you know, if you, you know, you could be a good editor, but it doesn't make you good at sound. So you have to sort of, you know, learn a few things along the way. Um, and that's the thing now, you know, when you even apply for jobs, you know, they expect you to be good at Photoshop, to be good at editing and to get to do this and that. And, you know, after effects, you think you end up being a sort of a Swiss army knife of of media production where ideally in a film industry, all those roles are broken down. Like that's an editor. That's the FX guy. That's the sound guy. That's that guy. But if you want to do sort of, you know, the commercial world, I suppose, or sort of 
freelancing they want you to be everything all in one so you know in this situation i've had to take on other roles that it's not really my responsibility um but you know you, you do it because you've got a small team and tight budget and running out of time <laughs> so. I, I just imagine because you guys being mac and pc users one using Adobe premiere you using final cut 10 it, i just imagine it's like a that knife fight in Michael Jackson's beat it. Like that's how it's going to be like, all right, who's going to be dominant here. That's the situation going to be. But, and you're right. I mean, somebody who's like looking at, uh, job opportunities for like freelance editors and videographers, like, Oh, must be, um, proficient in after effects and Photoshop. Like I'm good in Adobe premiere. I know I should be good in Photoshop and after effects here. I don't know if my computer can handle it. And I'm just like, and that's the reason why I can't apply because I don't think I would be up to snuff to their um, expectations. So that's why I'm just kind of like I really should be teaching myself other programs in order to make myself more proficient well, yeah, that way. You, you end up taking on too much work. That's the problem. And they, just, they, they do that because they're being cheap. Simple as that. Oh, totally. Because yeah, they, All they're going to do is, you know, they would ignore the professionals to a certain degree because they they think, oh, they're, they're charging too much, but you pay them for their skill level, and then it just gets some upstart young guy who's going to be work, who's hungry for work, and will, you know, deliver, but deliver for very low amounts of money and be, you know, taken advantage of. So that's the thing I'm always cautious of, and I don't like seeing. Um, so, you know, it's so yeah. So anyone who's wanting to sort of apply for stuff, you know, just um, make sure that. You are paid well if you're taking on, you know, a lot of skill sets in one position, you know. Definitely. And I think you're probably smart not to shoot in 4K. Like, I, my camera has a 4K sensor, but doesn't output in 4K. It outputs in 1080. And it's mm. really more about the sample rate rather than the how many pixels you have. Yeah, yeah. Because 4K... People still, everyone should, my friends say is that you shoot commercials and stuff and shoot corporate videos. Like, the, the clients want stuff in 4K. I think, well, it's going to be outputted at 1080p anyway, the whole, the final pro- project. So why don't we just shoot in 1080p? But they want it in 4K because it's another thing. But 4K, the beauty of 4K, though, is like because you can just zoom in on the footage and not lose any of the detail where 1080p you will. So, you know, you could do a jump cut to a closer shot in 4k and you won't lose a detail where you can do that in 1080p without looking a bit like oh you know it looks like it's 720p all of a sudden you know um that's that's a hand that's the benefit of 4k but um yeah i mean most stuff you know shooting in 1080p really is best thing to do oh totally <laughs> and somebody who's blown up and reposition frames inside my editor afterwards like that's why like a lot of my videos on their short films, I, I export them in the CinemaScope format, but I don't sure. shoot anamorphic because, A, it's like the rentals lenses are just expensive to, to begin with. Oh, yeah. And yeah. trying to do like the kind of like, oh, we can like repurpose these old Ru- Russian projector lenses for it. But like, oh, no, you have a dual focus system there. And you're like, um, I hope to God this is in focus. We'll have to wait and see when we get back to watch it on the monitor. But then... But then you're like, okay, now I'm married to this image. I can't reposition it in post. And that's why, even though part of me says, I would love to shoot true widescreen. So you have the the kind of distortion of like those kind of vertical lines and like the, the kind of like... That, that the, anamorphic blur. Exactly. Yeah. or And lens flares if you want to like go, go that way. But then I'm like, 
I like the kind of having the opportunity in post to be able to reposition it afterwards. So it is a yeah, kind of a give yeah. and take. That's what I think they all said. I think with even visual effects, where so many films are being shot, still on film, they'll be shot on Super 35 because it's easier for the effects guys to apply the effects. Where shooting anamorphically is a bit more of a bit more of a troublesome thing. So um, yeah, I think it's it's just easier shooting in Super 35, but you don't get that anamorphic depth of field. I don't think with those lenses. No, but like, but that's the reason why. Cameron never shot anamorphic because he had to do anamorphic effects for Escape from New York. Yeah. And with those matte paintings, and he said it was a pain in the ass. That's why he, the two first two movies was 185 because, like, he's using spherical lenses. And by the time Super 35 became popular, that's when he started shooting it with the Abyss onwards through until yeah. Avatar. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it's also it was easier for him to pan and scan stuff as well. You know, because he knew he knew ahead that this is going to be a pan scan for TV, home video. I don't want to lose a lot of the picture. You know, it's going to be easier to shoot on Super 35 than anamorphic. And that's what, like, when you did your T2 retrospective and saying, like, yeah, people who saw it on VHS technically saw more of the image, that blew me away because I didn't realize that. Yeah, but it just, but it just you know, cinematically doesn't look as interesting, does it, in pan and scan? That's the thing. You know, you may get a little bit more at the top and bottom, but, you know, seeing it cropped into 2351, it just looks more, this looks epic. It looks like a film then. <laughs> yeah, you know? because, like, everything inside the frame is incredibly important. A close-up becomes a lot more dramatic that way. That way. Yeah. Um, so with everything that's been going on with the documentary, like, do you have, like you said, like, late october early november you think that's when you'll be done with it correct oh of course this this month october sorry early october i've got to be done so and do you know do you have like a, i know it's a tough question do you have a tentative <laughs> release date i know it's tough to sit put that no, out there. not at the moment yeah but we just we've given an estimated release date but i think we will be announcing the digital release date so the digital copy will go out first so people get it straight away and then fulfillment of the merchandising and the physical release um will have will be pushed out in i presume late october early november um so yeah it depends on where you are in the country you know things may take more time than may take longer than others but yeah so we're, we're all fully confident with that um so yeah i'm excited you know just <laughs> i just want it done <laughs> <laughs> I, you know it was uh it's, like, it's, sort of, it's a bit of a crude joke, but I've always said to my producer, it's like I've been holding in a turd for so long. <laughs> I just want to, get, <laughs> want to get it out, you know. I'm not comparing my film to a turd, but I mean, it's just like, it's that feeling. You just, you just want to get it completed. And um, so you can kind of emotionally move on um, because there's other things I want to do. And I want to be able, be able to sort of relax again and not worry that I've got to get this thing done by X amount of days and, um, you know. Um, but it's you know, but then I, I'll, I'll probably miss that miss that experience. You know, if I don't do another documentary, you know, in the space of a year, I'll be missing that sort of like the fun of putting this thing together and seeing it all work and talking to these amazing people and and you know, you often forget about you know the, the position you're in and the and the opportunity you're given, and how lucky you are. But you're just more focused on just like just the work element and just like ugh. Just, just the the boring aspects of it all, um, and you're not you're not step. I often have to step aside and step out, you know, of my situation. Go, yeah, I'm actually very lucky to be, to be doing what I'm doing, um, and not take it all for granted. 
and um and i said you know thank the people that helped fundraise it they they gave me this wonderful opportunity you know because i'd always imagined you know dreamed about oh i'd lo- love to make my own documentary proper feature length one because i've seen so many in this like oh i'd love to do that i'd love to do it on this subject or that subject and but it's always just like a pipeline it's all just a fantasy but those you know people that helped fund it have made it become a reality and um and which i'm highly grateful for so thank you everyone out there who you know is listening who's help fund the documentary i i appreciate it so much yeah and as a fan of your work and when people were like part of the funding and we were just looking forward to because i think this was a natural progression in your career um will you do any kind of special screenings like in person was is that something in the cards or were you just want to like have is the digital downloads and the, the people who could buy physical copies if they pledged for that uh reward in the kickstarter and indiegogo campaigns um well yeah i'm i'm sorting out a premiere date um for the uk um so i'm tomorrow i'm going to a cinema for another for a screening for, for a friend of mine uh, for his movie um so that he, he told me that cinema is really good and do good rates and i was like oh okay i'll, I'll check this out so if it's like something there's a couple of other cinemas i've kind of eyed up to sort of sort out the premiere so um if that one tomorrow i see is great then i'll be i'll be having it there um so i've because uh, my producer's got so much on his slate because all of it you can sort out the premiere thing i was like yeah fine we can do that <laughs> So, you know, because I think part of, the, part of the Kickstarter, there was X amount of people that that were guaranteed um, to be part of the premiere. Um, so I think everyone else will either be sort of friends and family and um, so forth. Um, the L.A. stuff, I'm not sure with the with stateside. Um, I think the producer had just had talked about that. Um, so I think I think once, you know, once we've kind of got everything finished and signed off, he will be kind of looking into that. But if, you know, it may not happen with LA or, you know, the United States, I'm not entirely sure. I'd love it though. I'd love to, you know, do that, uh, be out there and talk to the audience and, and show the movie and like I would be doing in the UK. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, we have a distributor lined up as well, um, which is wonderful. Um, so that'll be, you know, everyone who backed the project gets to see it first before everyone else. So, um, but then, you know, piracy is part of, <laughs> part of the thing of the Internet. So I'm sure people that, you know, didn't pay to see it will see it anyway for free. Um, but, yeah, it's one of those things. Um, but, yeah, so the I, I believe, you know, once it goes out, uh, once it's well, obviously it's been sold to a distributor, uh, come next year it will be pushed across a number of streaming platforms. So you may you may sit on Netflix or Prime. I'm not sure, um, but I'm sure that will be there in their best interest to put it on that platform, um, which will be exciting. You know, if, it, if you know my movies on Netflix, that'll be that'd be pretty crazy. I'd say you have to pinch yourself there and to be like, I can't believe this happened. That'd be that'd be fantastic. It would be bonkers, absolutely bonkers and bananas. But yeah, um, I say as a New Yorker, I say premiere of New York. I will show you where the Ghostbusters uh, firehouse <laughs> is. Um, but I'm not biased whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. Um, It'd be great, man. I'd love to go there. I've got, yeah, I've got other, I've got a couple other friends there actually in New York. So yeah, that will be a perfect uh, opportunity for me to sort of see my friends and show the movie, and that'll be wonderful. 
Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's so curious that uh, one little small tangent here. Um, I saw the Ghostbusters um, Firehouse, I think, last year. And because my friend Mike and I, we went into the city because we caught a 35 millimeter print of Superman the movie. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it, it's weird. It's like, it's a hotel that has their own private movie theater that they show to the public here. And I'm like, this is very strange. And it's a very bougie, like very nice hotel. And we're just like in the kind of like the nice lounge area where they were showing a 35 millimeter print of Superman. And we were like maybe two blocks away from the Ghostbusters firehouse. And so movie was over. Yeah. We were like, all right, let's go to the firehouse. We did get lost for like five minutes. Like, wait, are we, which way are we going? Like, no, no, it's, I wrote the stuff up, upside down, like, God damn it. And we ended up going <laughs> the wrong direction there. So we kind of felt like numbskulls for a moment, but it was worth it. Um, and so this documentary is called, like, Inserts of Last Action Heroes. And there are other inserts of documentaries came out that you've spoken about previously. Um, how did those kind of come about? I know, like, you're involved with this one. Are you involved with any of the other ones in any other capacity? Um, in terms of, because Robin Block, who he produced the action one he went out his way and made the horror one by himself i wasn't involved in that creatively um i helped promote it because it's a friend of mine and you know um and i i, I was going to be interviewed for it but it came to the point where they had so many talking heads and i was just like well you, you don't really you don't really need me um because you know that's the problem when you, you keep adding more and more heads to the talking heads to, to a documentary you just end up you know with too many and you can't fit them all in um so i said okay that's fine so we he, he obviously now with the in search of tomorrow the science fiction one which is another project of his which is handled by the director of the horror one um david weiner um and i'm interviewed for the sci-fi one i did that uh, a couple of weeks ago um so that's 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 gonna be exciting you know this is i sort of talked about you know sort of sci-fi movies i loved and and so forth and like film magazines like starlog and city fantastic uh some interesting kind of you know topics i'd brought up so but i'm not involved you know in the horror and the sci-fi one creatively because ultimately it was um i you know i couldn't focus on those and there was there was a point i could have had a position within those things to have more of a, a bigger role, so to speak. But I was just, you know, doing YouTube and then doing the action documentary. You, you, you can't, you can't do, you can't, I, for me anyway, I, I couldn't do that amount of work. You know, it's just too much on my lap. And plus you've got, you know, your private life as well, you know. And um, so it's, it's become a bit of a mad juggling act. And I decided to take a step back. Just said, look, I'll, I'll just talk about, you know, science fiction films i won't be involved in a creative capacity um so once this one's kind of done the action one i'm i'm gonna have a break for a bit sort of um figure out what i want to do next and i've got some ideas of course you know i've talked about um with my patron followers you know my monthly sort of q a's i there's a street fighter documentary i want to do about the video games so it's, it's popularity in the early 90s that sort of 91 to 94 that sort of period when street fighter 2 came out and all the endless updates and spin-off stuff the movie the merchandise everything that kind of you know that was that was my sort of golden point of video gaming so when that video game came out it was just like oh my god a huge revelation um so that that was one idea and i'd be talking with my friend tim again who shot a superman 4 documentary and he'd um 
had a few ideas as well. So I may sort of go back to sort of a more of a tight knit group with me, Tim and someone else like the third person to sort of help with the production. But yeah, sort of tailor it to more niche things I want to do. I, I really don't know because it may just be once this comes out, things may change for me. I, I it's, all, it's, it's the wild west, mate. I don't know what's going to happen. Nothing may happen. Nothing may happen at all. It comes out. People go, yeah, it's fine. And just move on. And that's it. You know, um, so, uh, yeah, so, it, you know, I may get offered something. I don't know. It's 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 all up in the air. Very nice. I mean, if you do that documentary about the Street Fighter video games, I wanted to end with you reading Van Damme's speech to the troops from the Street Fighter movie verbatim <laughs> and try and make sense out of that. Oh, God, yeah, yeah. Oh god, that oh that speech was so was that, that speech is it's a tearjerker, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I I mean like it's supposed to be like Mark Anthony's honorable man speech from Julius Caesar, but it just does not work. And yeah. I, I've always I've always chuckled at it. I think I've I've laughed at it more as I've become an adult. But I know it's a, a sticking point amongst many a things with that movie. But it, it, like so many other cult movies, it's kind of like fascinating to watch and just admire at. Oh, God, yeah. Street Fighter in the movie is so much fun because of how, how bonkers it is and how absurd and how it's nothing really like the game. And it's just this, it basically, it's a G.I. Joe movie. That's what it is. And, you know, and uh, there's, a, there's a section on Street Fighter the movie in the documentary as well. So we've got Stephen, also Stephen Lee D'Souza talking about it and Scott Atkins as well. So that's quite fun. Nice, nice. And Street Fighter the movie has one of my favorite jokes in any movie when they're watching the monitor of a truck coming towards them <laughs> and quick change the channel. <laughs> yeah. Next bison wannabe is going to feel it. <laughs> well, um, yeah, so that is all the questions I have for you. Um, I want to say thank you, Oliver, for taking time out of your day to talk about your documentary and coming back on the show. No problem, Tim. It's been a, it's been a fun afternoon. It's been we've been talking for nearly two hours. Oh my God! Yeah, no. that, that's the thing. Like, because we're <laughs> like we're, we're such like-minded individuals, so they will just make time fly by. It's been fun. It's been fun. And uh, for the people listening at home, and like, where can people find your work, what your social media, and where they can keep up with the up, uh, up keep keep up to date with the documentary. Uh, well, if you uh, you can go to, if you want to keep up on uh, keep up to date with the action documentary, uh, we're on Twitter and social media at Last Action Doc. And if you want to find my work on YouTube, just type in Oliver Harper, and you'll find my stupid face. Then <laughs> <laughs> just click on that, and you'll find my videos. Um, so yeah, so we've got uh, coming soon a review on Rambo: Lost Blood. I mean, I'm not sure when this, this podcast will be published. But um, I'm working on a review of the Ang Lee Hulk movie. And then hopefully, if I get that done in time, I will be uh, for October, sort of Halloween period. Um, I will be the first horror film I will be covering would be American Psycho. Ooh, Exactly. Good film. Yeah, very curious about that. Um, I know it was, it was Dragon Slayer is the most recent one you've dropped, correct? Yeah, that's correct. The, the most recent retrospective, yeah. Right. And I'm just like, whenever I saw it, I, I immediately had to just belt out when that like the notification came on Patreon that that was live. I decided to say, I am the last one. <laughs> I, 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 that's the one line that comes to mind whenever I think about that movie. But that's awesome. Um, this 
interview should be going up very soon. But the people who have discovered the show because of Oliver and who have not followed me yet, you can follow me on Twitter at TimothyRooney2. My, and my YouTube channel, Through the Lens Productions, where my short film, Jack, made for the My Annabelle Creation Contest, actually from like two years ago, just crossed uh, 26,000 views on YouTube. And yeah, and just keep uh, keep up to date because there's plenty of other stuff that's all along the way and, and it comes to uh, short films and other video projects. Uh, again, Oliver, thank you for uh, taking time every day to talk with me. No problem. And uh, take care, Tim. Yeah, all right. And come back next time. We continue to talk about geek and pop culture and interviews. And don't forget to subscribe to this show and leave us a five-star written review on iTunes. It really helps get the word out there. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.